Well, in August of 1998, there was a news story that broke about the president of the United States having an affair with a White House intern. And, and though this affair did not directly affect foreign policy, though it did not uh, directly affect economic policy or, or energy conservation or any of those kinds of things, people, when they found out about this, were greatly dismayed. There was lots of questions being asked of the president, being asked of the, his, his cabinet and the people that supported him and all these different things. And the question is why? If it didn't affect those other things, why were people questioning him? Because when it comes to influence, character matters. Or said a different way, who you are goes before what you do. In this affair, it was an outward behavior, but it exposed a corruption of, of inward character. And so this morning, as we continue in our series, A Person of Influence, and as we continue uh, looking at the book of Titus and what it means to be a person of influence as a Christian, let me be the first to welcome you, whether you're here or joining us online, welcome. My name is Zach, and I'm, I'm on staff here with our church. And then we're continuing in this series, as I said, called A Person of Influence. Last week, Bill talked about how everybody is called to be an influencer. Everybody is called to influence others. And so in being called to influence others, what does it mean then to be an influencer who is shaped and formed by God through Jesus? And so that's why we're looking at this book of Titus as it addresses those things. And today we're looking at character because when it comes to influence, character matters. Who you are goes before what you do. Now, the truth is there are lots of people in our world that seek to influence. Recently, there's been a rise in what's called social media influencers, and they are people who are, have lots of followers on any kind of social media. And beyond that, they also seek to influence people within a given, I don't know, area that they have deemed themselves experts. But they've kind of hijacked that word influence because what they really mean is they seek to have you buy or purchase or participate in certain products or things. All right, an influence is certainly more than just getting you to buy a certain thing, though that can certainly be part of it. Now, less recent than the development of social media influencers, influencers are a part of all of our life. I think about coaches. I think about teachers. I think about public officials. Beyond those things, I think about moms and dads and friends and coworkers and bosses and brothers and sisters and cousins, all people who sometimes have influence in our lives. And to expose the tension that I'm talking about this morning, that is that character matters when it comes to influence, I want to ask you this question. When, when you, as an individual, find out that somebody who you follow, somebody who influences your life, somebody you willingly choose to let influence your life, when you find out that they are not who they say they are, what happens? What happens when you find out that that person is pretending to be someone that they are not actually? And the truth is, for most of us, what happens is this. We seek to either stop completely or severely limit their influence in our life. And why is that? Because as humans, as people, character matters. 
And specifically when it comes to influence, character matters. Who you are goes before what you do. And so this morning we're going to look at the letter of Titus that that is uh, written by Paul. And we're going to look at Titus 1 verses 5 through 9. But before we dive in this morning, I'm going to ask that you would join me in praying over our time. So please join me as we do this. God, would you teach us from your word? God, would you shape us to be the person of influence that that our character lines up with a a person of faith, that our character lines up with with that of Christ? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'm going to ask that you open up your Bibles or follow along on the screen, and we're going to read the text in its entirety. It's only four verses, uh, or five verses, but... But I want us to read it in its entirety, and then we'll go back through it. Here's what it says, starting in verse 5. We we introduced this last week. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery and subordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain rather hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. All right, so this is where we're going to kind of camp out today. And just a reminder, or maybe if you missed out last week, we've, we've started into this letter to this person named Titus. And Paul, he's the author of this letter. And the reason he's writing to Titus is because Titus is one of his disciples. It's somebody that that Paul has mentored over a given time. And, And beyond that, Paul believes that Titus can carry on the work of the church that he planted in Crete. And so he he gives Titus this assignment. And and much more than that, as we dive in today, Paul is looking to multiply the influence that he has in Titus's life through Titus selecting elders. Now, I know elders in a church is kind of like a specific role that somebody fulfills, but the truth is this, and Bill talked about this last week. An elder is a multiplying influencer. And so what we can learn from from Paul's description of the character of an elder is actually something that should be true of us as a person of influence. And so that's why we're diving deep into this. And as we zoom in a little bit, we're going to find that what Paul does is he frames this around three kind of general summations of a kind of person. All right, so he's not going to talk about one-off instances. We certainly have one-off instances in life. But, but also there are, there are ways in which people could sum up the, the, the whole of your life. In different areas. And so that's what Paul's going to look at. He's going to look at how character is represented through three main areas. The first of which that Paul looks at uh, is how character is represented through commitments. Commitments. And this is found in verse 6 where he says, If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, that's a commitment, right? And his children are believers, not open to the charge of uh, debauchery and subordination. That's another commitment. The first commitment is the marriage commitment. And as you and I well know, it takes a lot for somebody to remain committed to a marriage relationship. You look at the statistics today and and roughly one in two people find reasons not to stay committed 
in a marriage relationship. And whether it's for, for one reason or another, there, there are things that come up in marriage. And so for a marriage to work, for somebody to remain committed, there, there has to be one, some, some things that develop. One is selflessness. Right? The person, each person in the marriage has to learn to be selfless. They've got to be willing to learn that. And the person that actually refuses to learn selflessness, that marriage has a really hard time staying together. In a different letter, Paul would write to the church in Ephesus. He would say, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and laid down his life for her. This self-giving act of love, this is the epitome of selflessness. Beyond that, in the marriage commitment, in a marriage relationship, forgiveness is a part of that. And thank goodness. I, I am married, and I am super glad that my wife forgives me on a regular basis. There's lots that I do that messes, messes things up, and she's willing to be forgiving. But the truth is, uh, any marriage relationship is made up of two people, two very flawed people. And in being a flawed human, you make mistakes, so forgiveness is a thing that makes a good marriage. And so you can begin to see why, if you dive deep into the marriage commitment, you can begin to see why Paul might point to that as being something that is representative of a character within a person, how committed they are in the marriage relationship. But that's not the only one. He also talks about the parenting commitment. All right, as a parent, there's a lot of different things that come about. There's a, there's a lot of different things that, uh, that you are shown as a parent. One is how selfish you truly are. A kid will demand things of you. And if you're not learning selflessness in marriage, you have to learn it as a parent. Uh, Paul uh, Reeser, he's a comedian. He said it this way, having a baby dragged me, kicking and screaming, from the world of self-absorption. So there's a selflessness that, that's learned in parent. But beyond that, there's also patience. Patience is, is something that is learned as a parent. Your uh, kid is every, every day there's an opportunity for patience. In fact, my daughter, uh, my middle daughter, Indy, um, she speaks sometimes kind of slowly. Her thoughts come to her words kind of slowly. Some of you might think that I talk kind of fast, but my daughter, Indy, she's on the opposite spectrum. And specifically when she's telling stories. How many of you have ever seen that movie Zootopia? Uh, and you've seen the sloth who works at the BMV, or maybe you've actually encountered somebody at the BMV like this. But anyway, this sloth talks and thinks like this. And the truth of the matter is this. Sometimes my daughter Indy tells stories like that. And, and the hard part is, like, I want to be present for her in her story, and I want to listen, but, but sometimes I get distracted. And when I get distracted, not only is Indy very deeply offended, but she will yell at me until she gets my attention again. And then guess what? She starts her story not where she got interrupted, all the way back at the beginning. But that's an example of how kids just develop uh, patience in a person. But really, what Paul is saying is, is not just marriage and not just parenting, but quite frankly, any relational commitment. I'm talking like friendships. They are opportunities to see a person's character. 
Friendships give people opportunity for loyalty. They give people opportunity to carry someone else's burdens. They give people opportunity for forgiveness, for joy, for self-control. The list goes on. Any type of friendship. And beyond that, who are you choosing to surround yourself with? Sometimes that's a key indicator of the character within you. And Paul points to that. And he lays that forth. Secondly, Paul says uh, that the representation of character can come through conduct, how we behave, how we act. Listen to verse 7. He says, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. Then he goes into this big, long checklist. He says he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Now, just as an aside here, Paul is famous for coming up with lists like this. And humans, quite frankly, are also famous for when they see a list, believing that it is a checklist of things to do or things not to do. And if you get those things done or if you avoid the other things, then you've accomplished something. But that is not what Paul is ever after. Paul is is really looking at the summation of a person. Like, what, what is their whole of a person, and, and how is it represented to other people? And so he goes through this list. And, and the very first thing he does is he actually sets the standard. Right? He sets the bar. And what is the bar that Paul sets for all of conduct? It's above reproach. Above reproach. The question is, like, what does above reproach mean? Now, one of the things that I do in my free time, and you, if you've been around any time, you know this because I talk about it a lot. I coach soccer, and I coach high school soccer. And one of my favorite things to do as a coach is to take the, the athlete out of the actual sport, so take them out of the game of soccer, put them into a different competition, because it's in those different competitions that you learn the character of the athlete. Like if they're running a timed mile, that's not necessarily something you do in soccer. In fact, no matter how fast you are at a timed mile, it will never win you a soccer game. And so what does an athlete do when they're given a timed mile? Do they run the minimum requirement or do they seek to beat their time every single time? That shows you a little bit about their character. And that's kind of the above reproach mentality. Or just the other day, we took our soccer players and we went back to the gaga pit. It's like a form of dodgeball locked in an octagon ring kind of thing. I don't know if you've ever seen it played. But, but one of my favorite things was watching the athletes who did whatever it took to win. Because it's that athlete that understands what above reproach means. Above reproach is not the minimum standard. It is going well above and beyond the minimum requirement or standard. And so Paul, he lays that out from the very beginning. He says that is the standard for conduct. And then he he continues, he says, not arrogant. Not arrogant. So how does this person view themselves? That's a part of what's the sum of how they view themselves. When they walk into the room, are they the most important person in the room? And are they the first to tell you that? Or more than that, maybe they, they open their mouth to teach you something and they're the smartest person in the room. No matter who else is in the room, are they arrogant? And Paul says a person of influence whose character reflects that of Jesus, they are not arrogant. Beyond that, they're not quick-tempered. 
Now notice Paul doesn't say they are never angry because anger is an emotion and everybody experiences that. But the, the truth is, how do you respond to anger? What is your response? Not quick-tempered, not a drunkard. Somebody who, is, who is, doesn't lack discipline regarding vices that might drag people down. They're not violent. So even in anger, their response, their go-to response is not to be violent. Nor is it somebody who's greedy for gain. Notice he doesn't say poor, but what he does say is their attitude towards money is not one of greed, not one of seeking it above all else, not one of seeking it above people, taking advantage of others. They're not greedy for gain. And then Paul flips the page, and then he kind of turns the coin over, and he says, if this is not what it looks like, if this is not the character of somebody who is a person of influence that we are after, if it's not that, it is these things. He starts with hospitable. Now, hospitable and hospitality in general, it's more than just opening your home to entertain someone. Hospitality is opening your home so that the love that God has bestowed on you can pour out onto others. Sometimes opening your home and sharing a meal is the first church somebody attends. Hospitality. It's a characteristic of, of a person of influence. Beyond that, they're a lover of good. Here's the truth. I think every human being is a lover of good. But you know what? I think a lot of human beings define good how they want to define it. And that's not what Paul is after. Paul is after a lover of good as defined by the creator of good, God himself. He continues, self-control, this one's kind of self-explanatory, but it's not somebody who is only reactionary, who lives their life kind of out of control, who steamrolls other people, who, who's like a bull in a china shop, destroyed. It's not, it's not that person. It's the person who's self-controlled, upright. This refers to a person whose, whose standards are unchanging, who, who is very forthrightly on the path of God in an upright manner. It's a picture that, that they want to have in mind. Then he says holy. Holy uh, quite literally means to be set apart. But the question is set apart from what? Christianity is known as a faith that is supposed to be countercultural. Jesus was countercultural. So to be holy is to be counter to the norm, really after God's kingdom. And then discipline. Discipline's a hard one, right? Because discipline is one of those things that, uh, that means that you endure to the end, no matter what hurdles you encounter, no matter what pain you encounter, no matter uh, how hard it gets, you trust the process, you stay the course, you run the race. That's a disciplined life. Paul says when it comes to the character uh, or when it comes to the conduct of somebody's character that we're after, this is what it looks like. Now, I don't want you to hear this wrong because I know that there is sometimes the temptation to. We think that we hear this list and we try to live up to that, but, but Paul addresses that just a little bit later in the letter. In Titus 2, uh, starting in verse 11, he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, then he uses two words, training us, training us. This right conduct is not something that you seek to aspire to so that you earn something. You're not earning God's favor. You're not earning salvation. Rather, the only reason that your conduct can be a good representation of godly character within you 
is because of the gift of salvation through Jesus. The inward fixing that we need, the inward reconstruction of our fractured souls, this salvation that we so desperately need comes through Jesus. And it's there that that our conduct flows from. Lastly, Paul addresses the representation of character who? Uh, Through conviction. In verse 9, he says, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and able to rebuke those who contradict it. Conviction. Where does your conviction come from? That is the, the question. And how does conviction represent your character. Well, that which you are convicted by is a, a, a looking glass into your character. Paul says it's, it's the character that, uh, that is convicted by God's word. Is that what we strive for? Beyond that, is sound doctrine the, the thing that we are after, that we hold tightly to? Is, is sound doctrine and God's word the thing that we compare competing values, competing teachings in our world? Is, is it those things that that we then bring to God's word and see which lines up. And the truth about God's word being the conviction of our lives is this. If it is your conviction, the next logical question is, are you reading God's word? When it comes to conviction, listen, conviction is easy to avoid if we never encounter that which convicts. We know this as humans. Conviction is easy to avoid if we never encounter that which convicts. Ask a criminal. A criminal who is guilty of whatever they've been charged with, but, but if that is the case, guess who they seek to avoid? The judge, the prosecutor, the police who seek to convict them. They, they, they are looking to not encounter the convictors. It's not just true with criminals. It's true with humans. It's true with little kids. When they are in trouble with their parents and for lack of a better term are going to be convicted of their crime, what do they do? They run and hide. They get away from the convictor. If God's word is our conviction, are we in it or are we seeking to avoid that which convicts? Where one's conviction lies exposes character within. Now, if this is what Paul is after... This is what Paul is after, and character is is something that matters. I want you to hear this, Christian, today. The goal of character is Christ-likeness. I'm going to say that again. The goal of character is Christ-likeness, being like Jesus, being made and formed into Jesus. C.S. Lewis, he's one of the, the great... Uh, 20th century authors, theologians, and and influencers of of the Christian faith wrote a number of books. But in one of them, this is what he says about Christ-likeness. And I don't want you to miss it, so, so dial in here. He says this, Now the whole offer which Christianity makes is this, that we can, if we let God have his way, come to share in the life of Christ. If we do, we shall then be sharing a life which was begotten, not made, which always existed and always will exist. Christ is the Son of God. If we share in this kind of life, we also shall be sons of God. 
We shall love the Father as he does, and the Holy Ghost will arise in us. He came to this world and became a man in order to spread to other men the kind of life he has, but by, why, by what I call good infection. And then he says this. Every Christian is to become a little Christ. The whole purpose of becoming a Christian is simply nothing else. Friends, this is why, as Christians, we profess our faith in Jesus. This is why we profess our faith in his death and in his burial and in his resurrection to new life. This is why, when it comes to being baptized, we go down into the watery grave and we are raised to new life in whom? In Jesus. The goal of character is Christ-likeness. And so for all of us in this room today, all of us joining in online, that we, we land in the same place. When we hear what it is that Paul is after, when we, when we think about the character of a, of a person of influence, we land at the feet of Jesus. The same Jesus who Paul would say in 1 Timothy that, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. The same Jesus who has single-handedly had more influence on all of the world than any other single person. This same Jesus whose character is so godly, so upright, so moral that even competing faith systems, competing religions would uphold Jesus in a positive light. This same Jesus who desires to fix you and I from the inside out. This same Jesus who, who has a lot to say about what convicts our life. This same Jesus who has a lot to say about how we conduct our lives. This same Jesus who could not have set the bar higher or inspired us to live more truly to relational committedness. That Jesus. We landed his feet seeking to be a person of influence whose character is Christ-likeness. Let's pray. God, this morning I, I pray that your word can be a reflection, can be a mirror that we look at our own lives. Beyond that, God, we can truly lean into the grace and the salvation that comes through Jesus alone. God, and it's in that experience, it's in that inward reconstruction of us that, that you begin your work. God, and it's from that place where our character can begin to be Christ-like. And from that place flows out into how we conduct our lives, how we commit to friends or commit to marriage or commit to parenting beyond that God it shows us where our conviction lies God this morning may, may we as people lean into that I pray this in Jesus name Amen